Dad, we choose to delight in you. Even as Neil said earlier, that really struck me. To delight ourselves in the Lord. That's where the desires of our heart are met. So Lord, help us to um, just turn our attention off of our own needs or wants or desires. And just to fix them on you, on hearing from you. Let us be good uh, sons and daughters right now, good friends to you. And just to listen and open our hearts. We need, we need help even just to do that. So we thank you for that help that you're giving us through your Holy Spirit. And we pray that we would see the worth of Jesus this morning. That he is worthy of it all, that he is worth it. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. When I think of the good life, many different names have come to my mind. Tom Brady. Beyonce, Brangelina, Donald Trump, yes, comes to my mind, uh, Chip and Joanna Gaines, oh, yeah. there's some fans up there, LeBron, these are all people that in some ways have really made it, or they've, they've realized the American dream in, in, in one way, shape, or form, success, money, power, um, you know, popularity, just kind of, you know, people oohing it on over them, you know, wanting their life. They've got it good. They've succeeded. They have, they have the ability to kind of live the life that they want. They have the ability to uh, pursue the things that they want. Some of them have the ability to hire a personal chef to cook all the meals that they want. One Tom Brady. During, during football season, my wife and I read an article from Boston.com that talked about how the Brady's have this, this chef, his name's Alan Campbell, and he works just for them. And they have a very particular diet. They eat 80% vegetables and, and some whole grains and then 20% lean meats. And, you know, they, they met years ago, you know, the, the Brady's kind of encountered this guy as they were kind of analyzing their diet for, you know, both of them, their bodies are important to their work. And kind of choosing the foods that were going to be the best ways for, you know, especially Tom Brady to perform at a very high level. He's very, you know, wants to prolong his career, all these things. And so, you know, this guy cooks these delicious meals from vegetables. And it's hard to believe, right? It's like, to me, that is like the epitome of the good life. Like, and I, I'm sure Jay agrees as we talked about this because she cooks all the meals. So it's even better for her. But someone's making you delicious healthy meals that are like actually like really good for you. Alright, so I'm a little bit of a foodie, but when I think about the good life, that's probably the first place I go. So, um, as, we, as we move through this season of Lent, however, we are struck with a slightly different narrative. Because as we, as we know, the season of Lent is we are moving towards Easter, but before that has to come Good Friday. Which was really good for us, but not very good for Jesus. As we look at the life of Jesus, as maybe you read through some of the Gospels this, this Lenten season, and, and look at kind of the things that Jesus says, a lot of the things that he seems like he's calling his followers to don't seem all that good. Take up your cross and follow me. You will be persecuted. In this life, you will have trouble. You know, laying down your life, John chapter 12. 
unless a kernel of grain falls to the ground and dies, it remains a single seed. These things all make me a little nervous about Jesus. Because he's calling us to something that doesn't feel very good. The question I want to pose today and and through these next five weeks leading to Easter, we're going to start a new series called The Good Life. And the question is, what does the life that Jesus is calling us to really look like? And is it worth it? Really? What does it look like to follow Jesus? Is that life really worth it? Is it worth having to do things that make us uncomfortable? Is it worth Is it worth it if it changes the whole trajectory of our lives? Is it worth it if it costs us something? Is it worth it if we have to sacrifice? Is it worth it if we might have to even suffer? Is it worth it? So we're going to spend the next five weeks in uh, a section of the book of Matthew to answer these questions. It's a pretty well-known passage called the Beatitudes. And I want to give you, before I tell you where that is in the Bible, I'm sure some of you Bible scholars know where it is, but before we turn there, I want to tell you a little bit about the book of Matthew and kind of specifically what's happening in this, this passage of Scripture leading up to it, okay? So the book of Matthew is what's called a gospel of Jesus. It's kind of like a biography, but also kind of like a theology. So it's, it's like this selective biography about Jesus' life that's really just telling the stories that are helping us to know who Jesus was so that we would believe in him and know how to follow him. Follow him. That's what a gospel is. It's presenting this person of Jesus, not telling you all about every detail of his life, but it's, it's picking and choosing things to tell you who he is so that you will believe and follow. So in the Gospel of Matthew, two kind of sub-themes to that are discipleship, one, and exile and restoration. Okay, I'm going to tease those out real quick. So the book of Matthew is all about what it looks like to follow Jesus. That's what Jesus kind of calls discipleship. You know, he chooses 12 disciples. So in some sense, the book is a manual of how to do that. It's a manual of what it looks like to follow Jesus. What discipleship, like following Jesus, being someone that lives for him, looks like. Uh, this, this second theme is, is an interesting one. This whole exile restoration piece. And it's got deep roots in the Old Testament. Starting from Adam and Eve who were exiled out of the Garden of Eden. Going to the people of God who were exiled out of the promised land. They were thrown out because they disobeyed. All these, all these, these this, this theme kind of is this pattern in the scripture of, hey, God creates, there's sin, they get exiled, but then there's this piece of bringing back, this piece of restoration, okay? So Matthew is writing to a a Jewish audience, that's his target, and you see that if you read through the book of Matthew, because he's quoting all kinds of Old Testament scriptures throughout the book, and showing them, hey, this is the Messiah, Jews, that you have been waiting for. And he is bringing the restoration that you've been longing for from this place of exile that the Jewish people are in. Because when Jesus comes on the scene, some of them have kind of come back to their promised land after being conquered by Babylon and Assyria, these two giant empires. But they're still underneath Roman rule. Okay, so all of that context is going on. So that was a lot, but this is important to understand you know, what the message is that Jesus is bringing to people. The Jews are looking for the Messiah. Matthew's telling them this is it. And Jesus is going to describe to them what this restoration that they're hoping for actually is going to look like. Okay? 
Now, can you tolerate a couple more contextual details here? Okay. So, in the book of Matthew, here's what's happening as we come up to this point. You have the whole Christmas birth narratives, right? The Magi come, you know, Jesus is born and stable. All those things happen in the beginning of the book of Matthew. Then we've got um, Jesus is baptized by John the Baptist and starts his ministry. And immediately after that, he goes to the desert. He's tempted by the devil. And then right after that, he begins to preach a very simple message that goes like this. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Right after that, he starts healing all kinds of people. Just all these people are coming to him, and he's healing them and casting out demons. And that is where we come to the passage that we're going to look at today. So if you have a Bible, you can turn to Matthew chapter 5. It'll also be up on the screen. So this is Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. That's a little bit backwards, isn't it? Here's these Jewish people that have just seen Jesus heal all of these different people of all these afflictions. There's some excitement building. There's this new prophet coming on the scene. It's preaching this new message of repent for the kingdom is at hand. The kingdom of God that's going to come in its fullness. That the people of Israel are going to have this full restoration. Their nation's going to be unified. They're going to throw off Roman rule. And, you know, in addition to that, he's curing all this disease, which was one of the promises in the Old Testament for the people of God if they obeyed was that there would be no sickness. It's not just a new thing. It was a promise that now is being fulfilled in the Old Testament. There's a lot of excitement. And all of a sudden... Jesus starts saying some things that, hmm, that was kind of a little different than maybe I would have expected. Now, two other observations here. It says that Jesus went up on the mountain. Okay? So, this is this whole section of Scripture, Matthew 5 through 7, is called the Sermon on the Mount, if you're familiar with that. And the, the whole section is kind of the, the kingdom life. In other words, what it looks like to follow Jesus. Again, so it's kind of a condensed version of the whole book of Matthew in some ways. And some liken this to Moses, who also went up on a mountain and brought to the people, right, the, the law of God. Jesus is saying, this is, this is kind of the new covenant, the new testament, the new, you know, law of God. And it's interesting here that there is a division or some separation or two groups that are mentioned, the crowds and the disciples. 
that there's this, there's this kind of narrowing in on who is actually going to follow Jesus as he starts to teach what the kingdom is really going to look like, which is different than what people have expected. Now, the second thing we've got to talk about is this word blessed, okay? In order to feel the full effect of this, uh, of what this would have been on these people, we have to understand kind of what this word is. It's a little difficult to translate. Blessed is not quite the best translation in a word, or maybe it's the closest we can get. But some people render it happy, okay? Now, that's actually not bad, minus kind of the emotional part of, of happiness. It's not an emotional thing, but it's kind of like, you'll be glad if you do this. Or you could say you're fortunate if you are one of these people. Obviously, fortunate is not great because that's kind of like lucky. There, there's, there's this sense that God is the one delivering on these promises, so it's, it's not really luck. You could say maybe it will go well with you. Or if you wanted to make it really long, this is a quote, a state of well-being in relationship to God that belongs to those who respond to Jesus' ministry. Okay? Or simpler, if you're in Australia, good on you. Right? Um, I read that in a commentary, surprisingly enough. Right? The idea, the idea is that this is actually, Jesus is saying, blessed, he's saying, this is the good life. So let me read, here's Brian's kind of translation of this passage one more time. Okay? The good life belongs to the poor in spirit. Surprisingly, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The good life belongs to those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. The good life belongs to the meek. For they shall inherit the earth. The good life belongs to those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. The good life belongs to the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. The good life belongs to the pure in heart, for they shall see God. The good life belongs to the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. The good life belongs to those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The good life belongs to you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great, for so they persecute the prophets who were before you. I hope you start to hear the irony in what this is saying. And the good life is people that have it hard. The good life is those that, that kind of choose the high road. The good life is for those that might not take the easy path or have it all together. You've got to sense a little bit of the shock and the awe and confusion that this audience might have felt as Jesus starts this message of the Sermon on the Mount. And the rest of the whole Sermon on the Mount is explaining and kind of building upon these ideas in the Beatitudes. Now, because this is so contrary to what people were expecting... And is so contrary to what we understand in our culture that leads to the good life. Here is a reading of inverse Matthew 5, 1 through 12. Well, Matthew's out there. Like inverse, okay, I'll try it again later. All right. The good life belongs to the arrogant, for they will get what they want. Right? Don't they? The good life belongs to those who party, for they will be happy. The good life belongs to the powerful, for the world is theirs. The good life belongs to those who have it all, for they will be satisfied. The good life belongs to the merciless, for no one will stand in their way. The good life belongs to those who aren't bound by conscience, for they will do whatever it takes to win. 
The good life belongs to those who are celebrated, for theirs is glory, honor, and immortality. Now, when I, when I read this, for me, I get all kinds of flashes of people where it feels like this is true. Right? The people will, that will do whatever it takes to win are the ones that win, aren't they? They don't care what they're going to say or what it takes. or you know, They're not bound by some kind of moral code. You know, the merciless, I read an article about this, this um, drug cartel leader named El Chapo in Mexico, super powerful guy, you know, he escaped from this high security prison in Mexico like a year or two ago or months or something like that, and, you know, just, just the mercilessness of these guys, that they create this culture of fear and no one stands in their way, they do whatever they want. You know, people that are powerful, the world's theirs, I mean, you know, it's, it's their oyster. Hey, you want to fly to Timbuktu? Great. Just jump on a plane. You know? Oh, you own the plane. Just fly there. You know? We get this message all the time in our culture. It is all around us. Every day, we're feeding this. And before you write this sermon off, it's kind of cliche. Yeah, Brian, I know where you're going. We are all buying into this. I am buying into this. Unless I'm just a way bigger sinner than you, which, I mean, that could, that could be true. But I think there's a piece of us in all of this that really does think that the people that just kind of go for it and don't worry about doing what's right are the ones that really win. And we can't help but buy into this because it is all around us. So, back to the original question. Does this message that Jesus presents... Does this really lead us to the good life? And he's saying the good life is for those who are poor in spirit. It belongs to them. Does following Jesus really bring us to what we want to go? Because we all really want the good life. And is it worth it? Well, the message of the Bible is pretty clear. In summarizing this whole list, the good life belongs to the righteous. That's it. The good life belongs to those who do what is right. That choose the high road. That choose to put other people before themselves. You know, we try to call that, we call that following Jesus in a lot of ways. But in this list, you know, it seems like this is a list of righteousness. Being merciful, pure in heart. You're making peace with people. Right? You're you're standing up for what you believe in, even though it's hard and you might be persecuted. You're hungering and thirsting for righteousness. You're meek. You're not, you know, pushing something on someone. You know, there's a sense of mourning and not just even for, it's not just a general sadness. It's more mourning for the sin of the world, longing for restoration, living in a place of exile. The the path, the Bible says, to fullness is following Jesus. The best option for our life, God is saying, is this. It's following Jesus. It's doing what he says. It's the most satisfying, fulfilling, it's the wonderful life is found. Now, Jesus is, is, is working this against what they, they hear in the culture, right? I mean, he knows that this is, in a lot of ways, makes no sense. So how could it be that this actually is the best thing. 
How could it be that, that righteousness is actually what leads to the good life? And not all these other things that, that our culture is telling us is the way to get there. Well, for one, none of those things will last. Jesus has a long-term perspective. He is thinking about what is going to last forever. So if nothing else, Jesus is saying the good life is one, it's, it's good on you if you're going to invest yourself in rewards that can never be taken away that will last forever. The second reason is that none of these things that the world has to offer are really all that good. They're never really going to satisfy the longing for the good life that's in our heart. The fullness that we are created to enjoy and to know in God. I mean, I grew up in the church. This is all so cliche, isn't it? We have a God-shaped hole. Only God can fill it. But the message of the Bible keeps coming back to this because it's a problem we are facing in ourselves every day. Because we want to go after all those other things that we think are really going to give us the good life, that really are going to make us happy. That's really going to be, you know, okay, I've got Jesus and I'll be happy as long as I have him and this other thing. You know, the good life that Jesus is describing may not be quite the same as what you thought, but he's saying it's way better. You know, look at the list of the things that he's promising here. Seeing and knowing God. Being a part of his family, I'm summarizing a little bit. Being satisfied. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Like they'll be satisfied. Receiving mercy. Knowing that we're accepted. Regardless of all the, the awful things that we've thought or done in our lives. Inheriting the earth. We'll get to that later on in the series, teasing out what that means. Being comforted. Having a great reward in heaven. Now, we talked about how the, Jesus has this long range kind of thing going on. But there's also this tension that some of these promises, the first one is now. It's in the present tense. I don't know if you noticed that when we read it. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The rest of the list goes on to describe things that are wills, will happen. And then the last one, blessed are those who are persecuted, for theirs, again, is the kingdom of heaven. There's, you know, if, if, you, if you've taken a Bible class at some point in the New Testament, you've heard this already, not yet idea. So there's goodness now. Not just in the future, but it might look a little different than what the world is telling you. In other words, Jesus is saying by, by bracketing this whole list with a present and a present, he's saying some of these things will, but they're, they're bracketed by this present to say a lot of them are as well. Now, the promises are great, and we're going to go through this list over the next few weeks. So I'm going to deal just with the first beatitude now. I'm trying to give you a lot of context and themes that over the next four weeks after this Sunday, you'll hopefully we'll be bringing back to your mind. Okay? So I'm just going to deal with the first kind of beatitude here for the rest of this time. So the question is then, what is Jesus calling us to? 
We've talked a little bit about why this life might be better. What is it, in fact, that Jesus is calling us to? Well, here's a really interesting thing about how God's backwards kingdom works. It's only the unrighteous that can be righteous. If the good life is for the righteous, if that's really who's going to have what's the best possible life, the funny thing is that it's the only the unrighteous that can be righteous. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In other words, blessed are those who have some kind of lack, poverty, who don't have it all together when it comes to something spiritual. Does it remind you of anybody you know? You're looking at one. God's saying those people have the good life, the ones that know that they're lacking when it comes to to how their spiritual life is before God, for how they look before God, for how they have treated God and people in their lives. John Piper calls it spiritual bankruptcy. It's a position where you're saying, God, I need major help. I need serious work. I I do not have it all together. I have messed things up terribly. That is the poor in spirit. I am unable to pay. I am unable to resource myself. There's an inability and a humility. And this is the condition to enter God's kingdom. It's only the unrighteous that can be righteous. And this is, this is actually the, the se- only the second thing that Jesus has said in the Gospel of Matthew in terms of the message he's preaching to the crowd. He interacted with the devil a little bit. But his first message was repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And this is the next thing he's saying. Blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You see this play out through the whole rest of the Gospel. Of Matthew, who comes to Jesus and finds entrance into his family? Who are the people? The powerful ones? Pilate? Herod? No, it's the prostitutes and the tax collectors and the sinners because they're poor in spirit. Because they know, they recognize their need for God. The Beatitudes are, are um, kind of bookended with the seven woes at the end of the book of Matthew, chapter 23, kind of the end. Which is seven woes that Jesus says to the religious group, the church people. And says, woe to you because of this, woe to you because of this, woe to you because of this. Because the, the, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, right, for them it was all about the opposite of this list. It was about power. It was about position. It was about looking good in front of other people. It was about lording it over other people. It wasn't about the condition of their hearts. They thought they were righteous. It turns out those that think that they're righteous are actually the ones that are not righteous. You see how that works? The book of Luke that has a section of the Beatitudes that doesn't have this, this whole list that Matthew has actually puts those two things together. To contrast these two groups of people, the poor in spirit versus the arrogant, the proud. 
Now, as I was um, preparing for the sermon, I was kind of racking my brain about, you know, what example is there for how this dynamic works? And so I thought of this awesome movie called Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. <laughs> when I was a kid, uh, I had two cousins that were uh, kind of alternating, or just a couple years younger than my sister and I, and we used to go to their house frequently, and they, was, I felt like every time we went, they had this movie on. Willie Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Not, not the new one, the older one with Gene Wilder. So I don't know if you know this story, but you know, there's this poor boy named Charlie, and this, this crazy, recluse, you know, wealthy chocolate maker, Willie Wonka. He makes all these Wonka chocolates. And the... The narrative goes basically that he, you know, he, he hides these five golden tickets in these candy bars and, you know, these five kids are going to find it and he's going to bring him into this factory and, like, no one's seen this guy for years and, like, he's got this factory just, like, you know, surrounded by all these high gates and there's all these rumors about what goes on in there and, you know, so they're, like, allowed to enter into this factory. So they go through this crazy journey of, like, you know, someone getting sucked into tubes and falling in rivers and, you know, turning into blueberries and all those things. So you realize at the end of the movie that the whole point is that Willy Wonka is looking for someone to be his, to, to have, like, to give his inheritance to, someone to take over the Wonka factory. And wouldn't you know, the whole thing is a test for these five people, and, and the four other kids fail and are kind of eliminated, and then at the end of the movie, Willy Wonka tells Charlie that he's, he's been eliminated. And... Charlie does an amazing thing. It, it's basically a scene of, of kind of repentance, where he chooses to give to Willy Wonka this little everlasting gobstopper that this other guy, sorry, it's, it's hard to explain all this in like two minutes, but was willing to like buy, you know, from him and pay all this money. And here's this poor kid, right, that's giving up this chance to, to take this and sell it to this guy that, you know, is wanting to buy and steal the secret recipe for the everlasting gobstopper. Gives it back to him, just as kind of this show of, "Hey, I'm sorry that I that I had messed up at one point during this trip, and I'm not gonna I'm not gonna do the wrong thing." It's a scene of, of just kind of repentance, and and in that he's brought into this whole wonderful place of now they walk all of a sudden just like embraces him and says, "Charlie, you did it! You did it, Charlie! You know you, you made it! I knew you could do it!" You know, and he says, "You know, this whole thing was just a test, and you passed the test." And, I want you to now just, you know, take over my whole kingdom, you know, to be in my, you know, my, my family, so to speak, and, and, you know, bring your family into this thing. You're not poor anymore. Isn't that a picture of what Jesus is inviting us into? Now, Charlie's passing of the test, and not that we're passing a test, but it, the entrance into the kingdom, Jesus is saying, is one of a, being humble, poor in spirit, recognizing your lack, recognizing that you have messed up. And choosing to follow Jesus. The good life belongs to the righteous. It really does. We're confronted with the opposite of that all of the time. But Jesus is saying, hey guys, please trust me. That this is the best way. And it really is the only way to find fullness. It's to follow me. The things that the world has to offer are fading away. And they never really satisfy. So, maybe your question is, okay, cool, Brian. What do I do with that? What am I going to do tomorrow morning? You know, what am I going to do tomorrow 
afternoon, later on this week, how, how, how do I, what, what do I do with this? You know, maybe you, you've heard this truth, you've grown up in the church, you know, you've heard things. Well, there's, there's a few things. If you, if you wouldn't, if you say that you, you're not a follower of Jesus, and that you're kind of just curious about this whole Christian thing, this is really good news. This is really good news. Because it means you don't have to get yourself together to be acceptable to God. It just means you need to say, I'm sorry, I need your help. And I trust you, Jesus. I want to follow you. That's really good news. And it's really that simple. Jesus said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's a gift. Charlie repented, boom, the whole kingdom of Wonka is his. Right? For, for others of you that are following Jesus, trying to follow Jesus, you know, I've been following you for a long time. It's easy to get entangled in the concerns of this life. It is. I find it in my own heart all the time. And we need to come to a place of, of a continual place of feeling like, Lord, I am poor in spirit before you. I am humbly and completely dependent on you to meet all of my needs. I am going to delight myself in you and in what you have given me. I'm going to let you take care of all the desires of my heart. That's the life of faith. It's saying, I get to enjoy God because He's accepted me even though I'm a sinner. He's made me righteous because I've said I'm unrighteous. And now I get to enjoy Him. Um, I'm going to brag a little bit. I was a teacher for a number of years and I, I chaperoned a number of foreign language trips to other destinations, mostly through this, this tour company called EF. Uh, education first, and um, you can see their building in, in Boston. If you drive in there, sometimes you see this big EF blue sign. So one one year we took a trip to Costa Rica, and part of the reason I went is because one of my really good friends is a Spanish teacher, and so he was organizing all these trips, and he wanted me to come along. And we have kind of a, a good gift mix. He's kind of you know high energy person type, and I'm kind of the math brain organized who's going to stay in which room, all that stuff, and you know keep track of everything. So all that to say, we had a um, we were in Costa Rica and we were swimming in this pool and we decided, you know, all these kids, because you do weird stuff with kids, you say, hey, let's have a let's have a holding your breath competition. You know? Let's see how long we can hold our breaths underwater, you know? So, you know, all the kids are going, and then of course, you know, we're we're the big macho leaders, you know, we have to like impress, you know, these grown men, you know. So I I held my breath for three minutes underwater. And I didn't pass out or die. <laughs> and um I don't know if you've ever held your breath. I, I also used to do this in church when I was bored and as a, I was a kid, so I don't know if some of you are doing that right now, just to see how long I can do it. But I haven't done this in a long time, but, but you know the feeling, right, when you're trying to hold your breath about how desperate you get for air. I mean, it's like you're just, you're just fighting and this feeling in you just grows and you've got to take a breath, right? 
And I just remember, you know, being in there that three minutes and like I hear the clock ticking and I knew like what the other person's record was. It was like, you know, probably two minutes and something or whatever. And I'm like, I've got to hold on. And you're just like, and then all of a sudden you just come out of the water and you're like, oh, I'm desperate for air. That's a little bit of what poor in spirit is. It's like you've been holding your breath for a long time and you're desperate to get some oxygen in your lungs. Your brain is screaming for that. That is how God is inviting us to approach Him at all times. So, Jesus is inviting us into, into and saying, this is what my followers are like. They're desperate for me. They're desperate for my presence. So, there's, 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 a, there's, a, and there's a balance here, you know. We aren't going to experience all the fullness of these promises now, but there is some there. And as we delight in the Lord, we do actually have joy. We do have the sense of the good life, but there's way more to come. We're not living for this life alone. We're living for something far greater, but when we do that, we experience more than anyone else can get in this life, just living for this life. That's the promise of Jesus. We focus on what's to come, and we get more than anyone else does now. And the things that really matter, and the things that our heart is really longing for. The good life belongs to the righteous, and it's only the unrighteous that can be righteous. The invitation from the Lord today is hey, where have I placed something else before my desperation for God? I read a story recently, um, uh, actually Neil shared this story with me, there's a man that spoke at the harbor years ago, his name's Yiv, and he planted a church in uh, Odessa, Ukraine. Obviously a lot of things going on in Ukraine right now, between Ukraine and Russia and all that stuff. But Neil and I both get his updates, and, and after one of them he just has crazy stories about people getting healed and different things are happening in his church. He, he, Neil kind of responded and said, hey man, this is great, just, you know, I encourage you, this is awesome stuff that's going on. And um, he wrote back and, and shared this crazy story with Neil about a man that had just started coming to his church that had, just be, had become a believer uh, who was from ISIS, and it killed thousands of people. And he became a believer because one of the last people that he killed, right before it happened, said, I forgive you. That's, that's the way of Jesus right there. And it is completely contrary to this world, a way of forgiveness. A way of laying your life down, of being able to forgive the person that is just about to kill you, which now has just given life to this other man. True life. The way of Jesus is the way to life. The following Jesus is the only way to the fullness of life. The good life is for the righteous. Let's, let's pray. just invite you to, to dialogue with the Lord a little bit and ask him, hey, 
Where have I not been feeling the fullness, Lord, of life that you're offering? Where have I been focusing on things that are not really real? I think that's just a question for us. And if you've never uh, put your trust in Jesus, you can do that right now. Just by saying, hey, Lord, I have messed up. Please forgive me. Thank you for forgiving me. I want to follow Jesus. It's really that simple. Put in your own words and just tell the Lord where you're at. So as the band begins to play, I'm just going to pray and uh, response today, hey, ask the Lord, is there some place where I am uh, doubting that following you, Jesus, is the good life because of what I'm experiencing? And what is it that is in, in that place that I know that I need to maybe repent of? So we just invite you, Lord, to come right now, Holy Spirit, and convict us of sin and to receive your grace. And I just pray for a revelation of sight to see, Jesus, that following you is really the only way. Let us not give up. Let us not lose heart. And let us follow you, Jesus, in the season of Lent into a place of sacrifice and death because the result is true life.